I'm Kate Daniels. I think you might agree with me that we really don't need to look far to see the effects of drug abuse around us. It might be right in our home. It is definitely quite evident on the streets, in Seattle, downtown, in neighborhoods, and in many of the cities across our state. It can feel overwhelming and we may feel helpless. But there is help. It's in education and information. It's a crisis, so there's no quick fix, but we must do something, each of us finding where our strength or talent is and act on it. To provide some insights and guidance, we have Dr. Holly Geyer with us this morning. Dr. Geyer is an addiction medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. Related to her work, she's written the book Ending the Crisis, Mayo Clinic's Guide to Opioid Addiction and Safe Opioid Use. This book is a must-read for all of us because we are, each of us, affected by this epidemic so we must each look to being part of the solution. So let's meet Dr. Geyer to learn more. Dr. Holly Geyer, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us once again, as it is. So glad to be here. Well, I am so, I feel really privileged that you are meeting with us once again. One of the things being that March and Women's History Month, I really wanted to uh make us aware of the role of women in this very critical area in medicine, in medical help, and in very particular right now, your work with this with our opioid crisis, educating, informing, and well, really, it's the information. And you're very instrumental in this book, Ending the Crisis, Mayo Clinic's Guide to Opioid Addiction and Safe Opioid Use. And this is part of it. We really need education because we truly have a, a crisis. If someone isn't thinking we do, we literally do. And education is part of it. And, and that's really so much of what you are all about, correct? You're right on. This is a, a crisis state in our country. And I'm glad you're bringing up um, the concept of women being involved in this topic because we play such a critical role in the response, Kate. And in, in many aspects of it, uh, be it in medicine, such as yourself, being mothers with our kids and what's going on in being ourselves and perhaps being the ones dealing with pain and needing to use medication, or maybe it's our parents and our grandparents that we're needing to deal with. So uh, we really are in a very pivotal position, aren't we? You know, I have to say out of all the roles and the hats that I fill in life, uh, the one that drives me when I get up in the morning, Kate, is being a mother. And as we look at the opioid crisis, Despite all these titles, that's not what drives me to make a change. It's the three little girls I look at every morning knowing they're entering a world that the number one cause of death is now creeping into their age group under age 45. You know, opioids have really taken this nation by storm. And I've often said the most powerful thing in the world is not a politician. <laughs> it's not a level uh, F5 tornado. It's a parent that's worried. And that's quite frankly where I think a lot of people find themselves. And what we need to do, rather than really just wringing our hands with worry, is being informed, knowing what's going on. And from that, I think we can then know the strategies, know how to deal with it at least somewhat better. You're absolutely right. 
if history has taught us one thing, it's that being reactive doesn't drive results. Being proactive does. And that's where we need to get to. And so for me, as I look at this book, read this book and see the the way it's laid out and all the information, I say this is a great play to start, a place to start to get all the details and to have a better understanding. And then we might find the direction as to where our proactivity, our advocacy is going to be. You know, Kate, I had someone describe this book to me uh, better than I, I could have thought of myself. They said, you know, this book is a bumper sticker on mm. the back of a school bus. And I said, what do you mean? She said, have you ever looked at the back of a school bus? It says, this bus stops at all railroad crossings. And she said, so many people just assume that within this world of prescribing, that the pharmaceutical industry has made sure the opioids are safe for us, and the provider will make sure that they're safe for us, and the regulators will ensure that we're not getting too much, and the pharmacist will review our medication list. But the reality is that all of these, what we would consider barriers to having problems, have not proven to be the most efficacious way to make sure that we're safe when using those drugs. The reality is that with that bumper sticker on us, right, the knowledge to pull up, to think before we cross that road of using opioids is one of the best strategies we can employ and empower ourselves to use to ensure that that drug is not going to cause consequences for us. And that's what this book does. This book is about how to use them safely, when they're appropriate, when they're not, alternative forms to pain management that may not necessarily be uh, offered by your provider that should be brought up, and then how to manage all the consequences that opioids may induce, such as addiction and or overdoses. And we're dealing with two areas. We have the legal prescribed medication, and then we have all the illegitimate drugs that are on the street that uh, one never knows what is there. And there is a whole part of our population that's drawn to it. So that's, I think, between those two things, that's where we really are in this huge crisis. You're absolutely right. You know, Kate, we we see a lot of roads that lead to the path of overdose and addiction. Um, There's the most common one, I would say, right now that's leading to problems, which is people who are using the drug just for entertainment value. Um, Opioids are commonly now lacing common things like cannabis or other street drugs, even over-the-counter weight loss supplements that you buy on the Internet or um, other herbal therapies. It's pretty dangerous, but it's for oftentimes that recreational value, you know, that euphoria or that high they get that keeps them using. And then another common pathway is people who have medical coping, who are going to use these medications because of depression or anxiety or some of the other reasons that people may fall into the path of alcohol problems. And then finally, we get the one that scares me in my industry, and that's people who go to their doctor, are prescribed these legitimately, assume they're getting them appropriately by the provider, but may not necessarily be watched over as closely as they should and start developing long-term dependency that then can turn into addiction. All roads lead to Rome, and for the most part, we handle each of those situations by the time it's truly an out-of-control, life-controlling issue the same way. So... Going to the third one that you mentioned right now, Dr. Geyer, that one, isn't isn't there more oversight now? I'm kind of understanding that it's more difficult for people to be able to get a prescription, or am I wrong on that front? 
No, I think you're absolutely right. In fact, since 2012, national prescribing statistics have gone down almost every single year. And yet, if we look at the parallel numbers of overdose deaths, those are skyrocketing. And what we've identified is that we've created this niche within America such that people who were originally started on opioid prescriptions and then weren't able to access those as we started cutting back were already addicted. And we didn't have the treatment options available for them or they didn't seek them out. Those are populations that move over to the illicit market, the street market. And now, because the street market has boomed, people who've never started on the prescription opioids can find them just as easily. So we've got double the problem. The thought of purchasing on the street like that is horrifying to me. I I can't imagine. But I I would guess then when someone is really suffering uh, from the pain or because uh, there's just that sense of still feeling pain uh, because it's been there, I'm not sure how all of that really transpires. They are then drawn to getting these illegal drugs. You're right on. You know, chemical dependency and specifically opioid addiction is a really interesting process of the mind being rewired and essentially hijacked. And the original reason for use ends up being a very different reason than the one people continue to use. People typically start off with controlled use, right? They're able to take in the amount they want. They know when to stop. But as this kind of cycles over to impulsive use, when the brain starts to rewire, they need more and more of that substance to obtain either the high or to even feel normal because parts of the brain change such that everyday activities that normally would produce a high, hugging your kids, eating ice cream, going for a walk, no longer have the effect. And so they start chasing the drugs to ensure that they have some degree of happiness or satisfaction in life. But the more these drugs rewire, the more they take over. And ultimately, the body becomes physiologically dependent on the drugs and the mind is hijacked. But that the moment the drug is no longer in the system and wears off, people go through horrible, debilitating withdrawals. They've been explained frequently as like, I'm going to die symptoms. And people will do just about anything to get out of that. That's a state of compulsive use. And when someone's in a state of compulsive use, they're not doing these drugs to have fun or to stay high. They're not abandoning their families. They're not chasing alternative outlets to find these drugs because they're you know, seeking recreational enticement. This is all about being in a state of control, a prison, if you would. And getting them out is really key at that stage because um, oftentimes the synthetics take their life before they can get control of their life. And there's part of the issue, too. We just, it is such a crisis, an epidemic, really, that we don't have sufficient treatment, I believe, to help everyone who needs it. Oh, it's it's sad to see the paucity of individuals that actually receive treatment that need it. It's an estimated 10% of all people with opioid use disorder, which is synonymous with opioid addiction in terms of terms, Um, is uh, uh, the population that's getting treated. And we're opening up opportunities. As you may have heard, the Drug Enforcement Agency and the FDA has now cleared um, the drug buprenorphine to be used in populations um, across clinics throughout America. And doctors no longer need specific waivers in order to prescribe that. So this will greatly increase access, I think, for people that are visiting physicians. 
But again, we've got some of the most marginalized populations out there, those that are now in the, the depths of addiction, living on the streets or struggling with um, other complications that may not seek out their providers or don't even have one. And that, again, becomes an access to barrier or a, a barrier to access. And this medication, this drug, euphenephrine, is it? It goes buprenorphine. Euphenorphine. Euphenorphine. <laughs> so what is it? It is it to counteract the the effects a person who is addicted to the op- opioids? Does it help them? It does. It's got tremendous benefits. So when someone's struggling with opioid use disorder, what's happening is that those opioids go to the brain, they bind to opioid receptors, and those opioid receptors all light up, and they send off your happy chemical throughout the brain. It's called dopamine. The problem is when you don't have enough dopamine being produced on your own because you've shut your body down and that drug's not in your system, that's when the withdrawal starts. That's when you start feeling very depressed and all sorts of other symptoms. What buprenorphine does is it's essentially a substitute for the opioid with less addictive potential and the ability to stabilize the body so that it can recover from a brain healing standpoint. It goes in and it binds to the same receptors that any other illicit opioid would bind to or any other prescription opioid as well, I should say. And then it has a very slow onset of action and doesn't hit the same highs as other quick-acting opioids. And so over time, your body starts building up more of those receptors. It starts to rewire appropriately. And, you know, it really depends on the person as to how long they're on that. Mm -hmm. For some people, it will be a lifelong treatment. For others, many taper off at six months or a little longer. So it's, it's something we can titrate to the needs of the person and offer time for the body to heal. So that really sounds like a good solution. But like you said, only a a small percentage of people have access. But would there be enough of this medication to serve all those, especially those who are really vulnerable, those on the streets who are really in the depths, I think, of, I shouldn't, I I don't know that it's all, but so many are uh, addicted to the opioids. Is there enough to help them? I don't know if the the real problem to access has to do with the supply chain. Um, My greatest concern is really meeting them where they're at. And there's growing fields of research to support um, really outreach efforts to identify that population early and get them plugged in with programs. You might be familiar with something called opioid treatment programs and um, similar structured programs like those have been around since the 70s with a drug called methadone, which acts kind of a lot alike, like uh, the buprenorphine I mentioned. Um, but again, it's it's getting the product to that person and keeping them engaged in treatment um, so they can in- endorse or engage with other forms of treatment, such as drug and alcohol counseling and other behavioral efforts, social support, to really offer that co- you know complementary treatment parallel, not just uh, additional medications. And that is truly what is needed, is having all of those platforms working in conjunction with each other, because just one it is not going to solve the problem because it's very complex. You know, the American Society of Addiction Medicine talks about the term addiction as being something that manifests in biological, psychological, social, and spiritual domains. 
when someone's truly facing addiction, um, every part of their life starts to be impacted. And we know that giving someone just a medication to get it back is not the end all be all. We need to help them with vocational aspects, marital aspects, relationships that have been um, uh, you know, destroyed through the process, any legal problems that have turned up, um, you know, the host of things that uh, help people recover to their fullest potential, not just stabilizing a brain chemical. And all of that makes such complete sense. And as you look at this crisis, Dr. Geyer, do you see that that's something that we, as our whole society, as a country, need to address and put into place? It really is, Kate. You know, for the longest time, America as a whole has had a, there's a pill for that mentality. You know, we stub our toe and we get an opioid back in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, And what I don't want to get to is kind of that reactivity um, in our country where we see opioid use disorder and all we offer is a medication. I think we're coming to an increasing recognition about the importance of treating mental health and all these other psychosocial aspects of someone struggling with an addiction. The literature continues to support really broad interventions to help support people. And so the more we can circulate that message, the more we recognize that people will be willing to seek treatment because they know more than just their body is going to be restored as they go through treatment. Now, do you, is that an education that needs to happen? I'm trying to see how someone in the depths of of the addiction will will receive this will they be able to hear that how do we walk with people and and engage them to to want to make this this turn to to come to a place of getting healing in their life you know it being supportive is probably one of the first steps and we know so often people that are struggling in the depths of addiction are so fearful of going through those withdrawals. That's one of the greatest limitations to treatment. Letting them know that we have a medication that's going to help them avoid that terrible process is one of the key things um, that's going to drive them to actually seeking that treatment. And so I would say for you know individuals that are listening to this call that might have loved ones out there struggling, be that support system to say, listen, there's something out there that will probably work. In fact, the data shows that 90% of people who seek any other form of treatment besides these medications will be back on opioids, probably illicit, within one year of discontinuing that treatment. And so this is why it's absolutely key to start with stabilizing the body. And then once we get that person stabilized, their mind's going to clear up. They're going to be able to think about what other parts of their life they can start working on. And that's really where treatment programs come in, or at least a physician that works with a comprehensive group of other people that can offer those psychosocial and spiritual treatments. And again, keep your primary care doctor engaged with all of this, because as we grow the industry of people helping in the outpatient clinic setting with buprenorphine and then referrals out to counselors, I think that'll increase people's ability to get in treatment programs, given all the insurance limitations that can be associated with um, standard uh, uh, rehabilitation programs. And somehow we have to get around any kind of those, the insurance obstacles that uh, putting up the barriers just can increase the problem and realize that that directly, well, indirectly impacts every single one of us, right? It's so true. 
you know, there are laws out there that require insurance industries to offer both mental health and substance abuse counseling. The problem is both are fairly poorly regulated right now. And um, many individuals who face a relapse uh, sometimes aren't a candidate for repeat therapy by insurances because they failed. What we know in the whole mental health and uh, drug treatment industry is that um, relapse is often the norm, not the exception. And supporting the person through that is absolutely key, especially as a person who is now abstinent from these drugs, meaning no longer using them, loses tolerance. If they go back to those drugs without any other support, the dose they took before might be the one they use and their body can't handle it. It's a very common form of overdose right now that we're seeing, and we need better strategies um, to mitigate that. Handling the insurance issues could be one good one. And when you mentioned that about relapsing, which I, I think we really need to accept that that is the norm, and it may be quite a a number of relapses before finally getting to that place. But I, I think that in, in saying that and how relapsing and going back to the drug, I think the actor Heath Ledger was one of those people who was in treatment, but maybe took, I think they speculated he may have had uh, some alcohol and and that killed him essentially. I mean, that's pretty broad, but I think that was uh, kind of the scenario of what went on. So we, yes, um, accepting that we need to allow for repeated treatment uh, and have insurance companies just really, we should demand that they do that. (laughs) Well, the world is changing. The more we learn, the more we're empowered, the more we've used our voices, I I think that that's what we've been seeing, that people have been speaking up. They've been talking about their addiction publicly. You know, Matthew Perry came out very vocally about his struggles. And, you know, he was a very well-respected actor in the community, and no one knew what was going on. There is such shame that comes with, you know, the the whole topic of addiction that I think we're starting to reckon with as society. Um, the, the more we recognize it, the more we can address it. So I would say to anyone who's been struggling with addiction or has a loved one struggling with addiction, stories are powerful. And just like we've been able to destigmatize so many other things like diabetes and, you know, being overweight, um, the reality is we've got treatments that are out there. Um, we want to make those accessible and hiding the problem doesn't get us to them. So back to that word education, information, we need it. We owe it to ourselves and and to our whole society to be informed and, and to really get into this advocacy because even if we might not personally be uh, having an issue with an opioid, you know, I think it's perhaps even less than six degrees of separation that we know someone, or at least we walk down the street and I believe we see evidence of it. The data shows that one out of every five people in America knows someone personally who's died of an opioid overdose. Um, it's now the number one cause of death in adults under age 45, and a study just came out recently that showed that of overdose deaths in children under five years old, opioids were the number one cause. These are kids that are crawling around through our medicine cabinets when we don't store them well. These are kids getting into our bags of fentanyl that we thought we hid in the kitchen. This is our next generation, Kate. What are we doing? Are we going to have another generation if we keep up inactivity? 
if we're going to solve this, our solutions need to be as big as our problems. And I think we're coming to that recognition, but it's going to take a lot of loud voices and a lot of advocacy on our part to make sure we're attacking this from a multi-pronged effort. Advocacy is absolutely one of them. And I'm going to go back to an earlier conversation you and I had this year and how, and you mentioned you you have three daughters, but you were so concerned at Halloween at what might be in that treat bag that they might get. It, it's so invasive, pervasive, that we have to be so diligent about where our kids are and what they're getting. Oh, Kate, my husband pulled up a news story just a couple of weeks ago here in Arizona where thousands and thousands of fentanyl pills that were shaped like little pink and blue and yellow candies had just been confiscated as they came across our border. And I'm looking at that, you know, the average person in the throngs of addiction could care less what color their fentanyl pill is. I can guarantee you, but a kid's going to care, right? Mm, There there is a very deceptive um, and forceful approach by the cartels and by drug dealers to get this into the hands of the younger population. The data shows overwhelmingly that the younger you use, the more likely you are to become permanently dependent on that drug. So start them early, right? Um, The reality is, as a parent, we should be not just scared, we should be terrified. We should be asking about naloxone in our schools. We should be asking about, do our kids share lunches with other kids right now? Is that a safe practice? You know, there's so many things that I take under consideration for my little ones that I I think if anyone watching the news um, has questions about, they should raise in potentially public forums. And to think about having to, we need to be this kind of diligent, observant, involved, and yet Having to do that, I th- it's so painful to think of our children not being free to just be free and, and enjoy and have fun. The thing about trading lunches at school used to be a fun kind of thing to do. But you, yes, you have to be so ever careful of that. You really do. You know, the data showed that about 42% of all fentanyl pills that have been confiscated have enough in one dose to be lethal to an adult. I can only imagine that what that number is with children then. And we're seeing this drug lace everything out there, you know, cannabis. I have a good colleague um, friend who lost his son to a very similar problem recently. Um, you know, it, it's not the era that probably you and I grew up in where kids experiment, they have fun, they get yelled at by their parents, <laughs> problems over. One pill can kill. And that's what I would stress to parents these days. Um, If your kids might be experimenting, they might have one experimentation away from an overdose headed their way. And so talk to them about uh, the the concerns in this day and age with fentanyl out there about the risks of use. And I think, uh, you know, in the not too distant past, we'd say, you know, never accept candy from strangers. This is to like really underscore that never accept anything that looks like candy from anyone. Even if you know them, do not take anything. It's scary. I I don't think parents can overemphasize the importance of not taking anything they don't recognize. We put a line in our book that said, it's up to you what you put in your mouth. (laughs) Um, I, I thought that was well verb, uh, versed, um, yes. you know, sentence that every American should recite to their children before they go to school. You know, when they go to a friend's house after school and the friends say, listen, we've got some pills or we've got something that looks like candy. I don't know what it is. Maybe we should try it. 
Um, there's no wiggle room anymore. We need to be wise. Absolutely. And so part of this education and that wisdom is the education, the information, this book from the Mayo Clinic, Ending the Crisis, Opioids Addiction and Safe Opioid Use, really for any and all ages, as we've talked about, and and especially looking at the um, alternative ways of dealing with pain when it's that part of uh, of our life, you know, just seeing what uh, the yeah. options are. I think here, too, that covers it, and you really help us to be informed, Dr. Geyer. That's the goal. Empower every American with the knowledge that we as physicians and prescribers are privileged to every day that we are not necessarily sharing with our patients. You know, at the end of the day, our patients are the ones that are going to experience the consequences of potentially us not offering everything necessary to keep them safe. So let's give that to them. Let's empower them. And I think the book has all of the material necessary to really help people through these uh, conundrums. Yes, filled with personal stories, uh, stories of people who've been through these various scenarios, their life story, and uh, giving it all these options. So the book readily available through any of our favorite book sources, correct? That is correct, Kate. Well, Dr. Holly Geyer, I so appreciate you, your passion for this work and for keeping us informed. Thank you for taking time with us today privilege to be with you, Kate. Thank you.